0: You're
1: in the Waterloop. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Waterloop is made possible in part by grants from Springpoint Partners and the Walton Family Foundation. Waterloop. Hi, this is Travis with Waterloop. I'm a huge fan of high Sierra shower heads for many reasons, including how they are incredibly water efficient, They provide tremendous water pressure and they're made from solid metal with no plastic parts. I also love supporting a small business that's based in the High Sierra foothills where their team designs and assembles all of the shower heads with parts from suppliers in California. This is a U.S. company. I've spent time talking with owner David Malcolm. He's concerned about the pressures facing our water resources and wants to make a difference. That's why he's focused his company on water conservation and energy efficiency. Use promo code LOOP20 for 20% off at HighSierraShowerHeads.com. You're in the Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Excited for this episode to kind of geek out on some of my favorite stuff with maps and imagery and data You know, crossed with conservation and and water projects. Happy to be joined by two guests from the Chesapeake Conservancy. I have Adrienne Gemberling, she is Senior Project Manager, and I have Emily Mills, Geospatial Technology Manager. Thanks to you both for coming on.
0: Thank you for having us.
1: Yeah, so uh, let's start back maybe where this effort of yours began to use aerial imagery in conservation. How did this all come about? I think it's something I've kind of seen around the country a little bit, but it caught my Mm -hmm. attention, your work uh, there in in the Chesapeake region. So how did this all get started?
0: Sure. So Um, Our organization started out as a fairly small team. Um, We mostly focused on public access surrounding the Captain John Smith Chesapeake National Historic Trail, or Chesapeake Trail for short, um, as well as land protection. And We first started using BASIC GIS, which stands for Geographic Information Systems, to create basic maps and, and look at where lands are protected. Um, And as our organization has expanded and grown, our mission has also expanded to include broader conservation and restoration goals. So to um, really support this breadth of goals, our organization has really invested in technology and recognizing the power of of maps and spatial data to really inform smart environmental decision-making that has the future of our planet in mind. Mm. So our GIS team Um, The Conservation Innovation Center, we've also expanded our team with, um, we have 12 team members now, and we are doing our best to keep pace with the rapid advancements in geospatial technologies. Um, So our first kind of um, major endeavor with aerial imagery, I guess, uh, was back in 2015, we set out to map high-resolution land cover and land use for the entire Chesapeake Bay watershed, which covers um, 64,000 square miles, so it's a, a very a big undertaking. Um, and so we, um, this effort was funded by the Chesapeake Bay Program Office of the U.S. EPA Environmental Protection Agency. Um, and the high-resolution aspect of this data is really our, our game-changer for conservation. So, um, previously, the highest resolution data that was freely available had a pixel resolution of 30 meters by 30 meters, uh, which is about the size of, like, three tennis courts side by side, Um, whereas our data, we're using aerial imagery or photographs of the Earth um, to generate data that's one meter by one meter resolution. So that's more of, like, a sidewalk square type of size. Um, So that's 900 times the amount of information that was previously available to us. Um, And if if you can imagine a photo with pixels, you know, if your pixels are smaller in size, your photo is going to look way more detailed. And if the pixels are bigger, your photo is blurry. So high resolution data just gives us a much more detailed and nuanced perspective of what our environment looks like. And um, you know, ultimately we're using aerial imagery to you know, cr- create this data. We um, train a computer model to recognize specific features in the aerial imagery. And um, we use that information to categorize each of those sidewalk squares as a specific land cover class. For example, um, things like impervious surface, grass, vegetation, trees, buildings, Roads, etc.,
1: hmm. or water. <laughs> yeah, just had to water, throw, just had to throw course. that one in there. <laughs> um, so, so what happened? Like this, this first mapping was done by you all of the of the sixty four thousand square miles of the bay watershed. That's you know six parts of six states and DC. And so, <laughs> then the, it was like, wow, this is a powerful tool. We need to go further with this. We need to get better resolution. We need to, to figure out how to evolve.
0: Yeah, so I think um, ultimately the goal is, you know, this first year of data provides us a a good baseline, right, of what what does our environment look like now? And so that was back in 2015, and we were using 2013 imagery. So, of course, as time goes on, the landscape changes, and um, we need to kind of update the data, and uh, we're actually working on that right now. Um, we're using twenty seventeen and twenty eighteen imagery to generate uh, a new updated land cover and land use data set for the watershed um, and um what's really key there is when we have two different time steps of data, we can start looking at you know change and identifying where on the landscape we're seeing change and um you know things like where are the impervious surfaces growing or expanding out of our urban centers? How much forest are we losing year to year? Are um, our, our prime farmlands? Are we, are those getting developed or are we losing that land? Um, sea level rise, things like that. How much coastline are we using are we losing over time? Hmm. Um, so that's a kind of a key driver of having up-to-date land cover data over the years so we can see those changes and be able to provide that information to policymakers who can ultimately um, you know use that data and use that information to make smart decisions about how we can protect our our land and our water for the future
1: yeah, awesome. so how is the imagery actually gathered? are these plane flights are these drones are these satellites you know what what's the what's the actual workings of that
0: hmm So you're probably familiar with um, satellite imagery, you know, where you have satellites that are orbiting the Earth and they're taking pictures every so often and sending those images back to Earth. Um, For our high-resolution data, we use aerial imagery that's collected from cameras and sensors on low-flying airplanes. So generally, because those are flying closer to the Earth, we can get higher-resolution pictures. And... um, So for our land cover data production, we use imagery that's provided by the National Agricultural Inventory Program or NAEP. Um, And this imagery is collected by the USDA Farm Service Agency. Um, It's one meter in resolution, freely available, and it's collected every three years or so across the um, entire continent. Um, So that's the key data product that we use. We also use LiDAR data where it's available. Um, uh, LIDAR stands for Light Detection and Ranging, um, and that's also flown and processed um, by a variety of state and federal agencies um, flown by plane. Um, And so how LIDAR works is lasers are directed toward the ground from the plane. They reflect off of the first feature that they hit on the Earth's surface, like say a building or a tree or the ground, and the sensor can measure the distance to that feature on the landscape. Um, So what you end up with with LiDAR data is a very precise three-dimensional model of the terrain and features on the Earth's surface. Um, So that's another key data input that we use. And then finally, we like to use local um, data, mostly coming from counties uh, including things like roads and buildings and local land use. So we want to make sure that our bay-wide land cover is also reflective of localities that are collecting and maintaining their own data for their own purposes. So you can see here um, on the left side of the image, you can see aerial imagery, so basically a photograph, right, of the landscape. And it's sort of fading into what our land cover data looks like um and it's it's categorical, so you can see all the different colors represent different um classes, so the blue is the water and the green is trees um and then if you were to zoom in super close on this image, you could even see you know sidewalks building crisp corners on the on the building so this high resolution imagery really um allows us to uh plan and make decisions at a very fine scale. Mm. This image um represents a lidar point cloud, so the red, you know, red, orange, yellow, green, blue spectrum there. Um and then in the background you kind of see what the landscape looks like from a drone. Um But you can kind of see how LiDAR data helps us generate this 3D model of the features on the landscape and how tall they are relative to the ground. So this photo or this picture shows uh, what our hydrology um, data looks like. And it's basically kind of mapping the stream channel, which you see in red, But also going even further upstream to where, you know, when it rains, uh, when you have these storm events, how the paths that water takes um, and accumulates along those paths until it gets to the stream channel and eventually down to the bay.
1: Okay, so the red is like a real, you know, year round stream and some of the blue might just be, you know, Intermittent, ephemeral, yep. you know, kind of, kind of where the water flows. That's right. um, that's amazing. How is that determined? <laughs> what what allows mm-hmm. for that that knowledge? That's that's cool.
0: Yeah. So to generate this data set, um, we use lidar-derived digital elevation models. Um, so it's basically a map of the terrain, and then we use um, a our, our our most recent update uh technique or workflow uses what's called geomorphons and it's a um, it's an algorithm that uses line of sight uh theory to basically map different types of landforms um based on what the terrain looks like and so that's how what we're using to map stream channels um and then uh kind of before that method, we would also use what's called um, flow direction and flow accumulation. So kind of standard hydrology models that you can feed elevation models into um, to kind of map out where where water flows downhill across the
1: landscape. I'm curious about how the Chesapeake Conservancy has built up the, the staff capacity to do this kind of work. It's really technical. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not your usual environmental conservation kind of work out there, right? Um, so how has how has staff been trained, hired, you know, molded, if you will, to, to do this type of work?
0: Sure. Yeah, I think we're kind of a unique organization in that I feel like a lot of conservation organizations typically have, you know, maybe one or two staff who know of gis and can use it Um, and like i said our organization as we've grown we've kind of grown our conservation innovation center so today we have 12 team members uh, as part of our cic and um, they all have a variety of remote sensing and and geospatial and environmental science uh, backgrounds i would say most of us uh, received remote sensing training in um, either undergraduate or graduate programs and now are able to apply that knowledge to our work. Um, and then we also work uh, very closely with partners such as University of Vermont uh, with our land cover project in particular. So we're we're really unfortunate to be able to involve students to help us in um, uh, our QA, QC process, quality assurance and quality control. So um, and that way, students get exposure to this like real-world application of remote sensing. They get experience with data cleaning and data management, and um, they help us make a high, really high-quality product. Um, so that's another aspect of of training. Um, and then, of course, like I mentioned, we're we're working on updating the land cover and land use data sets. So um, we're, you know, continually integrating lessons learned from the last go around, and um, training new staff as they come on in terms of the methods that we're using, and, um, you know, being able to scale up to a large geography uh, definitely requires some automation and, and technical skills. So, always yeah. training up our, our staff in that area as well.
1: And like you said, teaching teaching the computer what to look what what something is you gotta you gotta teach yeah. it and program yeah. it in some way. And this is almost like a whole nother career track that's popped up in the conservation environmental protection field, right? Really using using this type of, I mean, GIS stuff's been around, but this is this is just an, the next level. Really cool. All right, so let's let's take it from how you get all this information, you assemble it. How then do you use this? For conservation, how do you use it to make decisions out there on the ground?
0: Mm-hmm. So, I, I was actually hired back in 2017 to work with partner organizations to help answer just that question. So, how do we figure out specific ways we can use this data? Um, how best we can integrate it into um, day-to-day work of our, our partners who are really on the ground and, and conserving and restoring high value lands across the whole watershed. So I think, um, like I mentioned before, land cover is so important because it provides that kind of baseline information of what our environment looks like now, what's on the Earth's surface. And so when we're asking questions about how we protect the environment and how do we manage our natural resources um, going into the future? amidst climate change and all sorts of environmental issues that we're facing, uh, we first have to know what are we working with now, right? Um, So how many, some examples, how many acres of forest do we have in this county? Or, uh, like I mentioned before, keeping track of urban sprawl, how many square miles of impervious surface do we have? Um, And so once you can look at the change products that we're coming out with soon, you can look at rates, like how fast are we losing, um, certain land that we value highly. Um, and, um, so the land cover really allows us to, uh, provide that information to environmental decision makers, um, who can then go out and save the world. Right. (laughs) That's Um, right. I wanted to mention one other key kind of data product besides land cover that we um, use a lot in our work and that's high resolution hydrography data. Um, So data that shows us how water moves across the landscape and makes its way into our our local waterways and eventually down to the bay. Um, So these kind of two data sets, hydro data sets and land cover data sets are super key and they help us determine at a very fine scale like down to the parcel level, what types of conservation and restoration activities might be best um, or might be most suitable or effective for improving water quality, protecting valuable land, um, especially in areas that are like right adjacent to our waterways. Mm. Um, So, yeah, with that, we can turn it over to Adrienne, I think, and
2: she can tell us a little bit more about how we use those data sets.
1: Sounds good.
2: In early 2017, I came on board at the Conservancy to coordinate a partnership that was formed in center and Clinton counties, uh, which are right in the center of Pennsylvania near State College, where Penn State University is. We started with just a few partners in this geography, maybe like seven to 10 at the beginning, and our group was called the Precision Conservation Partnership. The Conservancy had grant funding to bring together partners uh, around a mapping strategy to actually use that data that Emily just showed you to prioritize at the parcel scale where sediment and nutrient runoff um, was originating on the landscape. The first practice that our group really focused on was called a forest riparian buffer or streamside tree plantings. We can actually detect places where um, these streamside trees are missing using the land cover data that Emily described earlier. Places this vegetation is missing along our waterways are then pathways for pollutants to actually enter the stream unfiltered. And using our hydrography data and terrain mapping, we can identify the impact that conservation work would actually have by installing restoration practices in that upslope and near stream area. And from there, we can actually draw comparisons between parcels to determine which of them we can actually work on to get the bag, biggest bang for the buck in terms of water quality returns. When we started this project, we were really aligned on the places we were working. Um, and sort of as our partnership has evolved, we become more aligned on all steps of the restoration process. And so these include outreach to priority landowners, um, designing best management practices, uh, coordination of implementation between partners, And looking at joint opportunities for fundraising
1: I'm really curious about how that coordination happens Um, we know when you get more than one group involved in something you have competing interests and different skills and priorities and all that kind of thing so how does that coordination function um, especially when you have so many different entities involved and working in different places and so forth
2: Yeah, so overall, our approach in Pennsylvania has really been meeting on-the-ground partners where they are. Um, Our organization is really all about democratizing data, so these advancements in technology can really be leveraged to their full potential, and they don't sit on a shelf unused for years. Um, Like you mentioned, there are a ton of partners working in this space. What we're trying to do is figure out um, what are the strengths of each of the organizations and how can they be best leveraged to complement each other. Um, So what we've really done here is developed a collective impact model, building Mm -hmm. networks and collaboration um, with partners across central Pennsylvania. We have an aligned common agenda, shared metrics, um, and continued communication that really help our partnership um, stay kind of synced together and moving forward as one unit. Our common agenda for the four-county region is that partners are focusing water quality improvement projects where they can yield the biggest bang for the buck in terms of sediment nutrient reductions. And the partners we typically work with um, include conservation districts, nonprofits, uh, watershed groups, conservancies, and state and federal government agencies. And like I said earlier, high resolution data sort of helped us build this roadmap and facilitate work with partners who have adopted these priority locations where they wanna do restoration. And now we're moving into the stage where we're trying to align on more than just where to work. At this point we're trying to work together on who's doing outreach to which priority landowners (laughs) making sure they each have the right partner or trusted messenger making contact um, because we want to get the like best potential level of success right Mm. and then partners are also working together on design and implementation of these bmp's because there are sometimes like seven or eight of them at once and we're also fundraising for a portfolio of projects across these areas where we can have the biggest impact and raise more funds that will be ready right away. Previously partners were really waiting um, to apply for this grant funding until a landowner would actually say yes and now we're at the point where we have funds in hand and can start right away on project design, permit applications, and implementation uh, once we get to that point. And we've really packaged this process and called it rapid stream delisting. Um, And this is where we're bringing together all of these project pieces and really decreasing the time it takes for each individual project. Um, From first landowner engagement to the time the project is finished going in the ground. And to do that, we're leveraging individual partner strengths. Um, And together we're able to get more of these high impact projects done. Rapid stream delisting also includes a mapping component. So we've taken the mapping one step further to look at places where the in-stream environment Um, has been degraded or impaired according to the actual like aquatic insects living in the stream. Mm. So these are locations where sediment nutrient inputs from the land have basically compounded enough to negatively impact stuff living in the stream. So we can look at those agriculturally impaired stream segments and basically backtrack using like an MRI of the landscape to figure out where the sediment nutrients are originating on the landscape. And so rapid stream delisting identifies the parcels and then we combine that with mapping, um, that mapping with local knowledge of the catchments. So where have restoration projects already been completed? Are there places where there are shovel ready projects or landowners who might be um, amenable to doing conservation practices? Um, And then basically say, and then combine that with the mapping to say where we can get the biggest reductions where nobody has relationships. And by bringing together all of this um, knowledge in one place, we can most effectively and efficiently bring together previous work and accelerate water quality gains in those places with a tangible goal of delisting those streams, uh, those agriculturally impaired streams over the next like 10 to 12 years.
1: I would really love to hear about maybe a couple examples of, of how this work has been done.
2: Sure. So one example of where we have adopted this rapid stream delisting strategy is in the Elk Creek catchment in eastern Center County, PA, so just east of State College. Um, And I'm actually going to pull up a map of the Elk Creek catchment um, where we can see sort of how the mapping combines with partner knowledge in one place. And in this geography, we're really leveraging existing projects to help talk to other landowners in the catchment about installing BMPs. So you can see from this map, there are actually several projects that have been completed in this green area here. Um, We have uh, one landowner that has a shovel-ready project. Um, This one has actually turned into a shovel-ready project recently. And then we have all of these parcels where the mapping has identified as additional priorities. So we're hoping to leverage those existing relationships um, to actually get more projects on the ground. There you can see that. This is just for one landowner um on about a thousand linear feet of stream these are all of the different in-stream structures that have been installed to enhance fish habitat Um, and there are some native brook trout populations right above um, this agriculturally impaired segment so we're hoping to bring the brook trout um, down through projects like this
1: well yeah on both of these graphics it's jumped out the the variety of different partners involved for sure but yeah look at that that is really cool to to just see that view and and all the different little aspects and what's going to be in there—very, very cool.
2: And you can okay. see the stream segment is just beautiful now. Uh, it's a wonderful place to take landowners to show them what this looks like when it's all done.
1: Yep, that's what that's what we like to see, right? Uh, vegetation along waterways. <laughs> my last question for you is: Where do you envision this this whole effort going? Uh, it was mentioned before how quickly technology is changing and all the geospatial uh, area evolving quickly. And, you know, there's higher resolutions to things by the day here. So what's what's kind of your expectations for where things go and where you're all trying to go as part of the Chesapeake Conservancy?
2: Yeah, so I talked a lot about our rapid stream delisting um, initiative. This um, We're hoping to uh, scale this to include 30 streams. Um, That we're hoping to delist by 2030. And this links well with the conservancy's larger 30 by 30 strategy. Um, So President Biden recently signed an executive order announcing uh, a national goal to conserve at least 30 percent of our lands and waters by the year 2030 in order to protect America's wildlife and natural landscapes. And this is really in line with one of the Conservancy's goals here in the Chesapeake, which is to conserve at least 30% of the Chesapeake Bay watershed lands by 2030. And believe it or not, we can do this through hard work and partnerships. We've already conserved 22% of the watershed. Um, and together, we firmly believe that we can get to that remaining
1: 8%. And Emily, what about your perspective kind of being more on the, the tech side of things? What do You you know, in tracking this stuff, what are your, what are your thoughts on where this is all headed?
0: Yeah, I think um, as kind of geospatial technology advances, I think what our organization sort of envisions uh, leveraging that for is to create almost like a an interactive blueprint across the entire Chesapeake Bay watershed. So we can, you know, at any moment, real time, you can see um, what projects have been implemented where and, um, you know, all of these different partners coming across, or, you know, across the entire watershed. Um, what goals are they working towards? What projects are they working on? How are they collaborating and communicating with each other so that we can sort of see this like real time stream of all of this progress moving towards um, these Chesapeake Bay wide goals? And I think um, geospatial analysis can really help start moving us towards that vision
1: as you look around the country and you see other organizations, if you see others doing similar work, if you kind of trying to learn from them or conversely, if others approach you guys to try to learn about this type of work,
0: I think we are seeing, um, definitely interest in sort of the, the, the model that we're developing within the Chesapeake, um, in particular our, our land cover and our hydrology workflows and, and data production have um, picked up speed in in the West actually in particular so we've we've done some pilot projects for um, Denver region as well as uh, Pima Arizona um, and working with some organizations out west. Uh, on um, the hydro work as well. So, out west, there's more interest in you know water quantity issues, um, and so it's a little bit different in terms of applications. But they still definitely need that you know high res picture of what's on the landscape and and how water moves. Right. So that's kind of a, a baseline need um, across the U.S. and across the world, even for environmental management and planning. Right. Um, so there definitely has been interest in, in taking some of the techniques that we've developed in the Chesapeake and applying them in, else, um, in other areas and other geographies and in other watersheds.
1: Makes sense. Great. Well, I appreciate both of you coming on and sharing information about, about this aerial imagery and, and the conservation work connected with it. Really cool stuff. Caught my attention when I read about it. Uh, so I appreciate your time and the info. Thanks. Thanks Thank you. Thanks everyone for listening to today's episode. A special thanks to Waterloop supporters, Springpoint Partners, and the Walton Family Foundation. The Waterloop podcast is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart, stylish way to save energy, water, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Use promo code LOOP20 for 20% off at highsierrashowerheads.com. If you like Waterloop, please subscribe to the YouTube channel or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media and visit waterloop.org to sign up for updates. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.